Hey, everybody. Welcome to Listen Money Matters. I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs> My name is Thomas, and I'm here, as always, with Andrew. Andrew, how are you, and what are you drinking today? You know, it's, it's 11, so I, I could drink rum and be like a pirate, <laughs> but uh, I just have water right now. Do you get the lime juice in your rum to prevent scurvy? <laughs> no, no. Limey? <laughs> what are you drinking, man? Uh, I'm still I'm nursing the like last drop of my coffee. Got my uh, Burgess coffee from the local company here in Ames every single morning. But yeah, today we have guests on the show. His name is Charles Whelan. He's a professor at Dartmouth University and the author of several books. One that has been catching my eye over and over again every time I go to Barnes and Noble. Um, he's the author of Naked Economics, Naked Statistics, and also a book called The Centrist Manifesto. So today we're going to get into some uh, some overview about the economy, how economics works in general, and then Andrew and I being data nerds. Of course, you are more of a data nerd than I am. We're going to quiz him on some statistics stuff, ask why statistics matters, how we can actually interpret it, all that kind of cool stuff. So um, let's mix math with beer talk and hopefully make it interesting. <laughs> uh, how you doing, Charles? I'm good. It's good to be with you guys. Yeah, good to have you here, man. Um, and just before we get started, I'll, I'll let listeners know if you guys have catchphrases. Today's catchphrase was I'd buy that from, for a dollar, which uh, awesome Robocop reference there <laughs> from Andrew Chassini, I think that's how you pronounce it. Sorry if I butchered that. Um, but hey, if you want to get your catchphrases on the show and have me butcher your name, send them to us via Twitter. We're at Money Matters Man over there and want to read your catchphrases on the show, whether they be movie references or bad puns or whatever. So that's it for the intro. Charles, um, how are you doing this morning? I'm good. Cool, cool. So um, so you're the author of Naked Economics, Naked Statistics, and Naked Economics was your first book, right? Correct. Cool. So uh, here's my first question. What is economics and why do I want to read about it more naked? <laughs> no, this is, a, this is a great opening question. <laughs> economics is the study of how we allocate scarce resources. It's a lot of stuff that we take entirely for granted. So why do some people get Rolls Royces? Other people sleep on the streets and don't have enough to eat. Who gets the world's water? Why are we not building on condos on the national parks? We take a lot of these things for granted because you just walk, you know, you obviously got your coffee this morning. You handed over a couple bucks. The coffee company or store was only too happy to make that exchange because it's profitable for them. Obviously, it was a wise thing for you to do because you wanted the coffee instead of the dollars. So we take a lot of it for granted because a market economy is how we allocate a lot of stuff. Who gets the Rolls Royce that people are willing to pay for it? But once you delve more deeply, why is it that some people have enough money to buy a Rolls Royce, other people don't? Why is it that the middle class isn't seeing their the purchasing power of their incomes go up? There are a lot of deeper questions that economists study and that's why it's such an important discipline. Most of the things that we care about, poverty, wealth, health, well-being, are functions of how we allocate resources. So understanding it better and perhaps doing it better is really, really important. So sounds very um, educational and, <laughs> and uh, you know, high-flying PhD-ish, but uh, I just want to you know, make more money. I want to you know, retire rich, wealthy on an island. Um, why should I know more about economics? Like, how can it help me? Well, the only way you're going to get that rich legally is by selling something to the rest of us that we want. And the only way you're going to sell something to the rest of us that we want is by inventing, innovating, doing something better. You've got to produce value. And I think this is something that gets lost. I mean, one of the reasons why middle class incomes are stagnant is that the rest of the world is starting to do things that in 20, 30 years ago only we could do. Technology is starting to do things that only people used to be able to do, including checking out of stores and so on. So you need to understand why it is that people make a lot of money and what you can do to become one of those people producing value, and then you can live the life that you described earlier. Right, right. So it's interesting, like the way I think most people think about money and the way that I thought about it before um, I tried unsuccessfully to plow my way through Wealth of Nations in high school, where money is just this thing that lets you buy things like you need it and you don't really think about it after that. When really money is just a, a paper representation of value and you have to create that value and you have to like 
find a need that other people want in order to get more of that representation, right? So that's a really important point. Actually, the book that I'm working on now is a book on money and monetary policy and so on. And you've hit it on the head. Money is really just a giant ledger book. It's a way of keeping track, which is, okay, you've produced a Mercedes-Benz, which has a lot of value. So we could just as easily say, okay, I'm going to give you the car. I'm going to write down in my book that you know now owe me a certain amount of stuff. You have mm. to come rake my leaves for the next 150 years or you have to sell me coffee or something like that. Money is just an easier way of keeping the ledger book, which is I'm going to give you something that it's like a token that accounts for a certain amount of value. Then you don't have to bring it back to me because I sold you the car. You can take it to somebody else who sells meat or something like that. Money is just a way of uh, keeping track of the value that we all create. If you want to get wealthy, you got to create that value or steal right. money. <laughs> Yeah, so so it's uh, an easier way than saying, "Hey, if you uh, if you help us build these pyramids for eight hours today, that's worth two pots of beer." Uh, instead of that, it's like, "No, we have a common common point value for everything ever, and you'll operate within that uh, unit instead of bartering for individual things." Correct, and that unit may change. You know, Bitcoin and credit cards and other ways of keeping score, if you will are going to change things. But the fundamental aspect of what's going on, which is that we're producing something of value and then trading it to other people, that doesn't change at all. Mm. So I'm a big fan of Freakonomics. Um, I think they just have interesting stories and they kind of break it down easily you know, to understand what they're talking about. And whenever they mention money, I feel like it is but a beat away when they mention incentives. And um, I know that it is like so deeply intertwined into economics. Um, why and like wh what are – I mean is, are incentives only related to money? No, not at all. I mean you can be altruistic and get a great sense of feeling from doing – holding a door open for a stranger or volunteering your time. These are all things that are perfectly rational to an economist. People – unfortunately assume that economics means that everybody's greedy and that you only do things for money. That's not true. If you study economics, what you do is anything that makes you better off. It's much broader than money. It may be spending free time in a park sitting on a bench if that's what makes you happy. We just say that you're going to maximize your utility. Now, it turns out that a lot of maximizing your utility involves things that you have to buy, so you're not going to spend your whole life sitting on a bench. But it is a much broader concept, things like protecting the environment, helping other people, solving poverty. These are all things that are perfectly consistent with the basic assumptions of economics. So I had something to say about uh, incentives because it's interesting. Like, I think people can be incentivized by other things more than actual money. And um, one thing recently that reminded me of this is I saw a job posting by I think it was like Tim Ferriss where he was uh, he was saying, you know, it's a paid job and then here's some other benefits you might get. And one of them was like, I might send you an interesting bottle of tequila or something. And I was like, you know, rationally, that bottle of tequila might cost like 50 bucks. But if he had put, I'll give you an extra 50 bucks, like that would be less compelling than the actual like anticipation of getting a gift from somebody, right? Yes. And, and in fact, there's now very counterintuitive research that when you pay th people to do things, sometimes that can actually disincentivize them. So, for example right. – there was a certain strand of thinking that maybe if we paid kids to graduate from high school, to show up in class, to do things like that, that you would, you know, you get more graduation, more class attendance and so on. But in some ways, by commoditizing it, it actually discourages the behavior that you might otherwise do for altruistic reasons. The same would be true for organ, you know, we're not sure, but we think, we, we fear that if you start paying people to be organ donors, start paying people to do things that they do because it makes them feel good, then it cheapens it in some way. So the fundamental idea that people respond to incentives is absolutely correct. It's the fundamental tenet of economics, and thinking of incentives more broadly than just money is really, really important. But it's not always money, and money can, ironically, can cheapen an activity that we otherwise want people to do. Yeah, and isn't that called the over-justification effect, I think? It could be. I'm not familiar what it's called, but because it, it's a relatively recent phenomenon, but it is something that we're starting to observe. And in some ways, mm -hmm. I think economists have been too slow to appreciate that there are these other motivations beyond simply money, including human emotion, by the way. I mean, this every economist should read Shakespeare in the sense that the discipline was far too slow to appreciate things like envy 
vengeance and other human emotions. I'll give you a perfect example. When I was in grad school, people always assumed that if you did the following experiment, it's, the two of you would be perfect. If I waived a $100 bill and I said, all right, one of you gets to propose a split to the other guy. And you say, all right, um, and you, it's any split that you want. It could be 99-1, 50-50, 60-40. But the twist is the recipient of the offer can say yes or no. So it's my hmm. money. But if the, whoever gets the offer says no, then neither of you gets anything. Now, traditional right. economic thinking is that I'm going to make this offer $100 of my money. One of you, whoever it is, is going to say, all right, I get $99, you get $1. Right. Because you're going to take as much as you possibly can, or even $99.99. And that the other person is going to say, okay, because one penny or $1 is better than nothing, mm-hmm. and that's what I'm going to get if I say no. That is not true. We actually can run this in the lab, and once it gets below like 65 35 the person on the receiving end will say no. Mm-hmm. And they will say no, even though it costs them a fair bit of money because they think it's fundamentally unfair and they want to punish you. Hmm. That seems like it's irrational on the face, but in fact is perfectly consistent with human nature, which is to say, if you mess with me, I'm going to mess with you back, even if it makes me worse off. Right. Yeah. People are going to, you know, they're willing to go to great lengths, even sacrificing their own resources or comfort to like bring things back to equilibrium or where they feel that they haven't been wronged anymore. That's the definition of vengeance, which is I'm going to hurt myself to hurt you more. And of course, we've seen that for millennia. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, So I I could see that, um, you know, economics, you know, understanding incentives and, you know, why you'd want to earn money or understanding, uh, say, negotiations like this, you know, 65-35 split. Uh, might help you, uh, but like, how do you how do you apply these things? I mean, if you're at you know a job interview, um, do do you just kind of like open up your economics textbook? And I mean, like, why? Well, let's go back to incentives. I mean, the most important idea here is how do I get people to do what I want them to do? I'm in the public policy realm, so I think more about what governments and policymakers can do, but you can apply it in a business environment too, which is, okay, let's take something simple. I want you to recycle. Now, one thing I can do is I can say, all right, let's pass a regulation that says you got to put all your aluminum cans in the recycling bin, and since that takes a little more effort, I'm going to have to come and police the trash and give you a ticket if you don't, and it's a cumbersome process, intrusive, and so on, or I can do what most states have done, which is I'm just going to give you five cents back when you bring your aluminum can to a recycling center, or 10 in the case of some states. You can do whatever you want. You can throw in the trash. But of course, you're not going to, based on the data from all these states, you're going to actually want your nickel or your dime back. And if you don't, you're going to throw it away and some guy pushing a shopping cart is going to want your nickel or your dime. So it's far more likely, and again, we've seen the data, that the aluminum cans are going to come back and get recycled. I haven't forced you to do anything. I've just changed the price of recycling relative to throwing it in the waste stream. Yeah, that I really like that. Um, I'm sorry, I'm echoing a bit. So I was reading How to Win Friends and Influence People, and there's an there's an entire chapter about making or like getting more results by by finding out how to make people want what you want. And I think that ties right into like the recycling thing where if you can find a way to incentivize them that doesn't involve a stick, you know, it's like a carrot instead of a stick, then you're going to have much, much better results. Right. Now, it can be counterproductive. And this gets into some of the examples I use in Naked Statistics where be careful because people will do things for incentives that you may not fully anticipate. So, for example, in the education realm, we've gone to a bunch of states have gone to high stakes testing where teachers will get paid more if their students do well. They might get fired if their students do poorly which is all well and good when you take a first glance at it, but it has induced cheating in some cases. It's induced some things that are not quite cheating, but probably not what we anticipated. So I lived in Chicago for many years. My kids went to Chicago Public School, and I remember them coming home and saying how much they loved standardized testing. I thought, well, that's a little odd because nobody loves standardized testing. And they said, oh, because we get chocolate before each test. And it turns out that what the school was doing is juicing them up with caffeine. You can't give a nine-year-old a cappuccino, uh-huh. they'll be bouncing off the wall. But if you give them chocolate, 
both because of the sugar and the caffeine that will actually boost their performance. So incentives are very powerful, but so is dynamite. You just got to be careful about whether you're using it properly or not. Right, right. Okay, so so your book uh, had a chapter title, and it was like, why it may be a good idea to cut your nose off if you're a black rhinoceros. Correct. So how does that tie in? Well, this is a great public policy example. There is a huge problem with black rhinos. They're nearing extinction. They're indigenous mostly to Africa. The reason they're nearing extinction is not the traditional habitat eradication. It's that their horn is extremely valuable for some kinds of strange medicines, mostly in China. So because of that, poachers have an enormous incentive, but and in part because these are very poor countries where the rhino is living. So a poacher can make tens of thousands of dollars by killing a rhino, ch- chopping off the horn, and then selling it into the black market in China. Well, the logic of the chapter is you're not going to kill the rhino if he doesn't have a horn. <laughs> so mm. one of the policy solutions is to preemptively cut the horns off the rhinos. Now, they probably look funny. I don't think they actually need them to survive. But the idea is you can change the incentives of the poachers. They're not, they don't really care about killing the rhino. It's just the easiest way to get the horn. But if the horn's gone, they won't kill the rhinos. So it's one way of thinking through the incentives of the poachers, changing those incentives, and then hoping that you can protect the population. Okay. So do you know of any um, like policies here at home that have been changed due to this logic? Well, one of the things that we're trying to play around with is the organ donation example that I spoke about earlier. One of the tragedies in this country is that we have literally thousands of people who are dying on waiting lists, in part because we're getting better and better at transplanting organs, even though the, the supply of organs has stayed relatively constant. So the question is, how can you get people to donate more? We've talked about the idea of allowing people to get paid. But that runs into some of the problems we've discussed before. It also runs into some of the things we haven't discussed, such as, you know, if we were to allow for the sale of organs, it would almost certainly be rich people paying poor people for their extra kidney. And while that may actually help poor people who need the extra money, I think many of us would be uncomfortable if rich people just went around and offered, you know, a decent amount of money for, for poor people to give them an extra kidney. So... The idea that's been kicked around in some European countries, I'd love to see it happen here, is something short of offering organs for sale, but instead using human psychology to change the the outcome. If you're an organ donor now, it's because you walked into the Department of Motor Vehicles and signed up and said, I want to be an organ donor. What they've done in some European countries is the opposite, which is you're considered to be an organ donor. And then when you go to the DMV, if you don't want to be, you just say, I don't want to be. So we've changed the default position. So you're just opted in automatically? Exactly. And in fact, we have an opt-in system. They have an opt-out system. Traditional economists would say it doesn't make any difference because you either want to be or not want to be, and you'll find whatever end position you think is best for you. In fact, we're all a little bit lazy. And it turns mm-hmm. out that many people who say they want to be organ donors never kind of get around to signing the card. So if we change your default position, you'll just stay where you are. And in fact, in many European countries that have done this, they've eradicated the shortage entirely. It, so it all- really so really it's about like most people, when you ask them a question, they might have a binary preference. But in reality, there's like a comfort position and you can't get them to take action until like they get uncomfortable enough to do it. Right. And – we, most of us are uncomfortable forcing you to do something that we think you ought to do, whether it's saving money, whether it's being an organ donor. So it's a much more benevolent form of guidance to just say, look, I'm going to start you out in a place that I think makes sense. You, you can move anytime you want, but since most people stay where you put them, you can actually get a different outcome. Since we're you know, presumably going to talk about personal finance, that's a place where it's been used to great effect. Most people don't save enough for retirement. Most people don't take full advantage of their 401k, matching contributions, and so on. So rather than forcing you to save a certain amount of your income, oftentimes when you get a new job, they will just default you into the maximum contribution. Look, until we hear from you, and we'll make it very easy to hear from you, we're going to put you in this bucket, and not only are we going to take a certain amount and put it in your 401k, we're going to invest that 401k in a portfolio that we think makes sense for you. Again, you can change that anytime you want, but that is more likely to lead to savings and investment outcomes that are good for people in the long run. Yeah, and I like that a lot. Um, 
I tried to kind of make that a, a reality with my own investing where I had my mutual fund and every month I would go in and try to put some money into it, but a lot of months I just wouldn't get around to it or I'd sort of justify why I needed to keep my money in my bank account that month. And then when I turned on automatic investing, I haven't missed that money, but it, it goes every single month uh, right. into the investment. And, and there are a whole host of these things can really change behavior. Another thing we've learned is that small incentives don't always make a huge difference. So let's say we want you to go to the gym because we're worried about, as a nation, we're worried about obesity and other health issues. It's not just your problem, it's all of our problem. So we're going to pay you $5, $10 to go to the gym. That may work, it may not work. It's much more effective to say, if you go to the gym, we'll put your name in a drawing and you've got some chance of winning a new car. Really? Yeah, even though the expected value may actually be less, it's not likely that you're going to win the car, the possibility of winning a big sum is a greater motivator, oddly, than a for sure small sum each time. Because you can kind of dream big. It's why people play the lottery, even though they have virtually no chance of ever winning. Yeah. Huh. I actually actually heard about that with uh, prize link savings in the UK. Where we yes. uh, every time you put a dollar into your savings account, it's almost like a, a lottery ticket. And instead of getting interest, um, everyone you know just plays this lottery. And at the end of the month, one person or like two or three people will get like a huge. Amount. So wait, that's that's a European thing. So it's in the UK. I, I guess it's not allowed here because it, it competes with the state lottery. Right. Although so it's the opposite of a state lottery because it's a really good thing. Yeah. for the long-term financial health of the participants. I um, I think I was in the UK for almost a month in December, and I remember reading about that. And the the people who care most about encouraging savings for low-income folks were very excited about the prospect of that. I think it's also just a really interesting application of economics, but also psychology, behavioral economics, which is the intersection of economics and psychology. It's a very practical application of something that has the potential to make people's lives appreciably better. I really like that. Um, I was recently reading about uh, the lottery system here in the U.S. and some of the downright predatory tactics that some of the advertisers for the lottery use to get lower income people to in, you know, buy lottery tickets. So if they could be doing good in saving their actual money, uh, that would be that would be a great system. So I would like to actually see that happen. Every day I, I go to work and I, I play with numbers and I help you know optimize how iHeartRadio uh, gives the, the best songs to people and, and make sure everyone's happy. And so I, I definitely appreciate statistics, but it's a scary topic. And, I'm, and I know that you have uh, another very down-to-earth book called Naked Statistics where you kind of try and inspire interest in people uh, to check it out. And I'd say like, for the normal person who is not a, a, in love with math, why should they care about something like statistics? Because just like economics, it's a really powerful tool. Unfortunately, both econ and stats, I think, are poorly taught in the sense that professors often just delve immediately into the math without presenting the big picture scare anybody away. It's really exciting stuff, and we didn't talk about math at all. Stats is the same. Stats is basically using lots and lots of data about health, about music preferences, about test scores to infer patterns, to see some pattern that matters, and then act on that in a way that can earn you money, that can produce better outcomes, that can do something better because you were informed by what's happening out there. There's one thing about statistics that I really wanted to cover, and I think it could be immediately useful to people, and that's the disconnect between actual probability and plausibility of stories that that people come up with their, in their mind. And like in in our minds, we we think that if something sounds plausible, it's more probable to happen than if you actually learn things about statistics. You see that it's more of an inverse relationship a lot of the time. Um, I don't know. Have you have you heard about Daniel Kahneman's uh, forecasting study back in the eighties? I know Kahneman. I don't know that particular study, or maybe I'm familiar with the work. But it does turn out that we are pretty bad at appreciating probabilities. Mm. So we walk around worried about a nuclear meltdown at a you know, at a nuclear plant, which, by the way, has never killed anybody in America. And while we're wandering around, we're in the sun with no sunscreen as 
skin cancer continues to be one of the largest and fastest growing killers. And, and you know, I, I literally once when I was researching naked economics, I may have told the story naked statistics too, ran into a guy and he said he was afraid of flying. And, you know, if you look at the data for commercial flight, it's shockingly safe. Yeah. You know, the reason we may perceive it as not safe is because just like the last week or so, we read day after day about a particular plane crash. We're not, of course, reading about the thousands or tens of thousands of car accidents mm -hmm. around the world at the same time. But this guy told me he was afraid to fly. And at the same time, there's no exaggeration, he was smoking while sitting on a motorcycle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't even know where to begin with you. Right. It's not going to be a plane crash that is going to do you in. You know, yeah. it's funny you bring that up because uh, I think it was like a, a year ago. I'm a big fan of Elon Musk and SpaceX and all the things he does. And uh, there was like uh, two and, the, and then three of his Teslas that caught on fire. And it was like some ridiculous scenario where some sharp thing shot up under the car, like ridiculous. And people were like, Tesla's light on fire. Uh, they're unsafe and the stock plummeted ridiculously. And... um. Elon came on, uh, you know, Twitter or whatever, and he, he linked to an article that he wrote where statistically you were like 200 or more times like likely to die in a fire in a gas-powered car than a Tesla car. But people were very irrational, so they all sold the stock and, you know, created a great opportunity for people who understood statistics right. to I kind mean, of – To go back to your opening question about statistics – one of the things that the data allow us to do is to overcome these pre-existing biases, right? What do the numbers actually tell us? I see it every quarter as a professor. You know, the first four or five weeks, I think I know who the good students are. Sometimes I'm right. Sometimes I'm, I'm wrong. But when I get the midterm exams, then I get some empirical evidence of who actually knows what they're talking about and who doesn't, right? And, and again, that can override what I thought or it can confirm what I thought, but it is a better and more accurate measure as would be data on which cars actually catch on fire or what things actually kill people or who actually wins the lottery than just kind of reading the newspaper and guessing on what's most dangerous or most profitable or what have you. Charles, Charles. do you invest in the stock market? Yeah, but I'm a passive investor. So if you read the chapter- That's good because we that's what we're about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm an index fund guy. I always have been. Uh, you know, I think probably the rare person with the rare bit of information who spends most of their time staring at screens and visiting strange countries might be able to meet, beat the market on occasion. I'm not that guy. So, yeah, I'm a passive investor. So let me ask you because, um, I mean, I think it's great that you're investing. I'm sure you're, you're doing well because you're, you're buying and holding in, in indexes. But um, what about these depressions and crashes and, and market explosions? Like, uh, you know, shouldn't that have wiped out your – your savings by now? No, because I just held on to it and it came roaring back. I mean, last year was a great year. I mean, the, the, back to the psychology, the very worst thing you can do, which many of us are prone to do, is panic in a downturn, sell wildly, which of course is why we have these downturns when you get bad news, and then only get back into the market when things are better and the S&P has already anticipated all the good news and has gained back everything that it lost. I mean, that's a recipe for losing your savings in short order. Now, I mean, I will say that I do believe people are psychologically irrational, particularly in moments of fear and greed and so on. And in theory, I suspect there probably are ways to take advantage of these irras big irrational movements there is, I'm a big fan of some of the folks at University of Chicago who've tried to use behavioral finance to buy when people are selling in a panic and so on. But last time I checked, they still weren't beating the market. It's just, it's still really hard. Things are so unpredictable and crazy. I certainly know that I can't predictably make money based on these wild swings. But it wouldn't surprise me if somebody, somebody figured out a way to do it. And, but of course, as soon as they do that, then they're going to eliminate that possibility and the markets are going to go back to being as efficient as they were before. What would you say to someone who is afraid to just go into the market because they've read all and, and I think the stories of bad things rise to the top, but you know, that they did happen and, and they're afraid. And the first thing I would say is just make sure you're saving. I think we obsess about where you put your money and we lose sight of the fact that if you put it kind of anywhere with a reasonable return, for 30 years, you're going to do pretty well. So if you're, if you're paralyzed about saving for your kid's education 
and you can't get around to saving the money, then it doesn't matter where you put it in, whether you put it in the market or not, two years before they graduate high school. So first, focus on creating that pot of savings. Second, just appreciate the relationship that's never going to go away, which is between risk and reward. If you want to if you want to know with certainty that this money's not going to go away, then you're probably in an FDIC insured checking account or something like that and your return's going to be close to zero. Mm. If Uncle Al comes along with the next big energy source that's non-polluting and promises you a 27% return, you know, maybe, but there's a good chance you're going to get nothing. And so that, you know, that's, you know, with some exceptions, the ironclad relationship. You got to pick your risk level. As you well know, the longer your time horizon, the more these booms and busts smooth out and the more risk you can afford to take. So I would say if you appreciate the importance of saving early and often and the fact that risk and reward are going to be inversely related, then the rest of it is just kind of frosting on the cake. Yeah, and I would say another good thing to do would just be to familiarize yourself a little bit with the history of the economic cycle and everything because you know when I was in high school I would listen to a lot of talk radio and news and stuff while driving to school and I was basically certain that within the next 5 years after I graduated the uh, the economy would finally tank for good like America would like the dollar standard would go away from the world because there's all this sensationalist news and then you finally like read and people are afraid of that stuff in the 50s and they're afraid of that stuff you know 10 years ago and eventually the cycle comes back up so really it's just kind of like exposing yourself to high upside probability you're you're not guaranteed to come out on top but it's very highly likely that you will yeah, I mean, if i could take one kind of moving graph with a new scared investor, it would be a series of graphs. They'd say, look, this is what the S&P did over the last 10 days. And that person would be like, oh, my God, this is, this is like a casino. This is terrible. I would never put my money in something that's jumping around. <laughs> I'd say, all right, well, this is what the S&P did over the last year. And that could be good. It could be bad. They'd still say, you know what, I'm a, I'm, I'm a savings account kind of person. And I'd say, okay, this is the S&P over the last 10 years. And they'd say, oh, all right, well, that I could probably manage that. And I'd say, this is the S&P over the last 50 years. And they would say, well, that seems better than my savings. That seems like, you know, trends up, relatively safe. And I'd say, okay, but remember, that's 50 years. Mm-hmm. If you need the money next week, don't mess with this. If you need it 30 years from now or 18 years from now, then you should feel much more comfortable by putting a significant amount of your wealth in that bucket. Yeah, so define your time horizon and then look at the data that supports that time horizon. Right, and I can't predict that the next 30 years are going to look like the last 30 years, but I can say, look, this is the S&P is going to track productivity improvements. It's going to track general gains in wealth. you got a whole bunch of stocks, so you're going to capture really the whole American economy. I'd urge you to invest internationally as well because then you're going to capture gains in Asia and China and so on. But if you invest broadly, diversify, and have a long time horizon, then all the terror that you saw in one index over the last week essentially goes away. Mm -hmm. One thing that I found, uh, you know, if if you're doing something like simple interest or, you know, uh, in your checking account, and you, you could really calculate that out and you could understand what you would have at the end of the year, but when it comes to exponential growth or exponential, you know, uh, reduction, it, it, we tend to not be able to grasp it. And I think um, one of the things that that is interesting. So if you had like a hundred thousand dollars, and you know you invested over thirty years, and you only lost two percent a year, you would have lost two thirds of your money. And um, I, I guess how might you convey exponential growth or or, or loss to people who who don't really see that. It's a very hard thing to convey other than just doing the numbers like you did. I'm not aware of any metaphor or anecdote, and that's part of the problem because it works both ways. You want people to appreciate that, look, what you're saving now may not seem like a lot, but 20 years from now with compound interest, particularly if you're taking on a decent amount of risk, it's going to be a lot of money. And the flip side is, you know, that, that interest rate you're paying on your credit card now, which is a big number to begin with. If you just keep floating that debt or that payday loan, that is going to come back to bite you. Every once in a while, you'll see, particularly related to debt, I think some states require this now, where if you buy something and it's heavily, you borrow heavily to do it, it will tell you the price of the item, your monthly or yearly payments, 
then the total you end up paying and how much of that is interest. And that starts to become a really, you, you realize that, you know, two thirds, three quarters of it over some time period can be simply the, the borrowing cost of that long loan. So as far as I know, it's only putting numbers against this concept. Like it's hard to get people to appreciate this kind of time value of money with compound interest. Well, in your, so in, in uh, Naked Statistics, you have a chapter that says, don't buy the extended warranty on your $99 printer. So maybe you could think of it as like just doing these super low interest uh, or barely any saving at all would be like taking an hour out of your day every day to go to like an indestructible printer at FedEx to use it. And then yeah. over time, you realize like you're wasting so much time when you could just buy a printer that may break, but it probably won't. Right. I mean, that's probably a good way to do it is to translate this kind of difficult to get your mind around concept into something that's more concrete. We do that with other things that, you know, this may not seem like a lot of money, one Starbucks Frappuccino a day, but when you aggregate it over a long period of time, you could buy a car at the end of a certain amount of time. And so those kinds of examples, I think, are compelling. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I think economists often default to the math. And for a lot of people, that just doesn't motivate them or they don't appreciate it. Yeah. So there, yeah, there was one statistics concept uh, on the topic of probability I learned about Bayesian statistics a while back. But the only reason I was motivated to learn about it is because it was it was put in terms of how I could use it to make better decisions in my everyday life instead of just fiddling with the numbers. Yeah, and that I mean I think that's what we got to come back to because the the whole point of this stuff is not like poetry or fine art to just look at how beautiful it is. You know this. I actually just had a student in my office before we came on, and their assignment is to write a paper about how economics can improve public policy. And he, he brought a paper in, and it was a paper showing something about the sales tax, and he said, I just want to describe the paper. I said, well, the purpose of the class isn't to just describe the paper. The purpose of the class is to use that finding to actually change our lives in some way. And that, you know, we got to keep coming back to why we have statistics, why we do economics. It is to make businesses work better, to make our lives more comfortable, more productive, to make us wealthier, and also to improve what government does or doesn't do. So we're in the, the biggest capitalist country, you know, the, the most successful capitalist country. Um, and, you know, we have all these policies in place to, to help everyone make money. But when you look at our, our government, I would say we might, I mean, maybe not the least efficient, but we're definitely not efficient. And uh, you have this awesome chapter in your book, and you say, the Army was lucky to get that screwdriver for $500. Can you maybe explain why um, in this awesome capitalist country that we live in, our government is so not efficient? Right. So one thing to bear in mind is almost by definition – the things that we're asking the government to do are things that the market can't or won't do. So it starts from a difficult position. I mean, let's use an absurd example. Let's suppose I'm trying to run a housing project for poor people in Chicago. And historically, those things haven't worked very well. I mean, they're run down, they're lousy conditions, people don't pay what little rent they're supposed to. They're, you know, relative to a luxury high rise, they don't work very well. Or that we could point to it and say, you know what, this is government not working well. So suppose I turned it over to a for-profit entity and said, look, I got this property in Chicago. They'd say, oh, well, I know what the problem is. you got too many poor people here. Right? So they, <laughs> they get rid of the poor people. You need people who can pay their rent. right? You, you need people with college degrees. Well, that's not what I set out to do. right? So you know, there are, there are reasons that the private sector doesn't solve pollution. If I go out and fix climate change, it, there's no way necessarily for now that I can monetize that. Um, and so we ask government to do things where the incentives are such that it's hard or impossible to make money. So they start out with a difficult challenge. Now then, because it's government, we've taken away the incentives that make the private sector work so well. So why are they so mean to me at the DMV? Because they don't really care if I come back. <laughs> I mean, you know, why they're so mean to me at United Airlines, I don't know. Right? But at the DMV, at least I can understand that, you know, I have to go there by law. So, you know, and that person's not going to get paid anymore if I'm happy while I'm there. They're not going to get paid anymore if I come back frequently. That There's no point to going back to the DMV. So it shouldn't be any great shock that these government entities work like 
regular firms in a communist country, if anyone, if you traveled in the old Eastern Bloc or the Soviet Union. Uh, but I think we do have to be fair and say that there are fundamental things that the market doesn't accomplish, like feeding, clothing, poor people, and so on. And that it's more difficult to do those kinds of things because incentives don't work as well as they do in the private sector. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's good to think like the people who work in government are still also people. You know, they have the same incentives and drives and psychology that we have, but they are trying to build an entity that takes care of problems that don't necessarily have those incentives built in. So right. you can't expect it to be perfect and work exactly like the, the free market does because they're not operating under the same incentives. Right. Now, I do think there's scope for improvement. You know, can we do things at the DMV so somebody does get a small bonus? Yeah. When I leave, I fill out a small survey, and I'm actually happy that nobody yelled at me. Right? So, it, you know, what, but what we have to do is it's not like venture capital. You know, they're not going to get rich by doing something really innovative or, you know, particularly customer-friendly. So we have to kind of approximate those incentives to try and get them to behave in a way that's more consistent with good customer service that you find somewhere else. Mm. So I was at the gym the other day, and um, <clears throat> I'm on the bike, and I'm just pedaling, and I have like all the television screens above me, and I see you know, at the bottom ticker sign that uh, thir- you know, we just had Senate elections and stuff like that, and like 37% of the people actually think the, the newly elected officials will do more and everyone thinks that they don't do anything already, will do more than the previous ones. And um, in in researching you, I, I know you had naked statistics and naked economics, but I didn't know that you had the centralist manifesto. And I guess because I, I see you as a pretty reasonable guy, I'm curious, what what is this? And, you know, I, I think we can all agree our political system is broken, but we're not sure what the solution is. Right. I wrote this book called The Centrist Manifesto in part out of desperation on several fronts. One was on the policy front. So as we've discussed, what I teach and write about is policy issues, health care, education, higher education, so on, the fiscal situation. And what I see across those areas is a series of broken situations. I'm deeply concerned about America's long-term fiscal situation, particularly the cost of entitlements, I'm very concerned about the effectiveness of K through 12 education. I'm really concerned about healthcare, which is consuming a higher and higher portion of our income while not producing results that are even on par with other countries that are spending much less. I'm very concerned about climate change because we're doing nothing. And whether you think it's real or not, there's certainly a threat there that deserves attention and so on. So that's the policy side. Meanwhile, what we haven't talked about, you may or may not know, there's kind of the political side. My first job out of college was writing speeches for Jock McKernan, who was a Republican governor of Maine. But he was the old New England Republican who's kind of, they've gone to extinction. They were the kind of moderate. He was a pro-choice, pro-education Republican, fiscally conservative and so on. So then, Impossible. Yeah, right. right. So <laughs> that's where I'm going with it. So then the Republican Party, to my standpoint, kind of moved away from where I was. I never felt like my views changed, but the party, as everyone has seen, has kind of moved right. So when I moved to Chicago later on, I, ended, I actually ran for Congress as a Democrat. When Rahm Emanuel became chief of staff, that created an opening. It was my congressional seat. I ran the special election. But during that, I realized, you know what? With my set of beliefs, I'm never going to win a Democratic primary. Mm. I cannot placate the teachers' unions. I cannot promise that we're not going to cut entitlements because mathematically we have to. And so, so I felt like I was a man without a party, that lots of other people also felt that way. Meanwhile, I'm worried about these policy problems that aren't getting addressed. So all of this came together in the book. At meanwhile, public policy data are showing us that both the Democrats and the Republicans are hemorrhaging members. The fastest growing political affiliation in this country is none of the above, independent. And increasingly, people are telling places like Gallup that we need a new third party, presumably of the middle. So the book I wrote brought all these forces together. And at the time, I said, let's create a political party of the center, one that's more fiscally responsible, but also socially tolerant and environmentally responsible. Right. I mean, these things, I think, fit together. And I think that package of beliefs, broadly construed, speaks to a big and growing, particularly with millennials, group of the electorate that is woefully underrepresented in Congress. 
I think this is an awesome idea. And and when I was, you know, exploring, I was like, oh, you know, it's cool like you wrote a book um, to kind of convey like your frustrations and maybe galvanize people to do things. But uh, what you actually really promote on your site is what you're calling the centrist project or centristproject.org. And, uh, you know, it says most Americans are moderates. Why do we keep electing extremists? And you're trying to actually create a movement. Um, how has that been? Well, one of the important things to recognize is why in the book I prescribed a third party and what we're doing now is a project. Part of what we realize is for all the talk, people don't like third parties. It's mm-hmm. a bridge too far. Most of us have an inclination towards the Republicans or the Democrats, even if we really don't like what, what they're doing. And saying that you're going to walk away from that and join a new party, as rational as I think that would be, people just aren't willing to do it. So our pragmatic approach, and everything about this is designed to be pragmatic, is to say, okay, you can keep whatever label you want, and we're not going to force you to say you're affiliated with this new party, but please join this project, this force, this movement in the center that will support independent candidates who are moderate and centrist, but also some Republicans and Democrats who are the most moderate, pragmatic, bipartisan of their respective parties to empower the middle. It's it's a different flavor of the same basic idea. So instead of getting people to, like politicians, to join a new party, we just want to form a movement that supports the best options we have in the existing parties? Right. And from a strategic standpoint, we are focused like a laser on the U.S. Senate. Okay. The idea is everybody thinks about the presidency. You are not going to win the presidency as an independent or a third party because the Electoral College makes that virtually impossible. You have to either win an outright majority of the Electoral College, which you won't. And if you don't, it's going to go to the House where you will have no votes. Right. People then look at, at the House, but the House is so mercilessly gerrymandered to make these races uncompetitive, that it's very hard to win enough seats in the House, either as a centrist or as an independent, to make a difference. The Senate is entirely different. You can't gerrymander a Senate seat because the state is the district. Right. And in most states, there are no runoffs. So if you imagine a Senate race, particularly with an open seat, where the Republicans do what they do, which is they run their primary and you have to go right to win the primary, and the Democrats do what they do, which is they go left to win the primary. And ordinarily, after you win the primary, you come back to the center. Remember Mitt Romney talked about the etch-a-sketch where you mm. try and walk away from all the stuff you said to the crazies in the primary. Well, instead, imagine that scenario where there is a third centrist candidate who's been in the middle from the beginning, speaking to all those independent moderate voters from the beginning who only needs to win 34 percent of the vote in a three-way race in order to win that Senate seat and then roll it up and imagine you do that three or four times, just three or four times, and the Senate becomes something like 49-4-47. Neither party has a majority and you are the kingmaker. So that's the strategic vision to try and leverage this growing belief that we need something better in the middle. Yeah, I like this because you know, whenever I ask myself, like, what do I believe? What, who do I affiliate with? It's always like, it's a, it's a toss up between, um, betraying logic or betraying principle. <laughs> right. Right. And it's like, it, I don't want to do either one. Awesome. So I like this bad option, right? I mean, how it's just too many times that we've all gone into the voting booth and said, all right, which of these is the least bad, yeah. which of these is going to make me the least unhappy when really it would be nice every once in a while if we went in and said, which of these makes me excited. Mm hmm. That would be a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah, well, let me tell you how hard it is. I mean, we did this in the 2014 cycle. The idea is to raise 50 states worth of money and support and then funnel it to key Senate races. So we endorsed five candidates, one mm. Republican, Susan Collins in Maine, because she is always whenever the Senate's working well and there's a gang of anything, she's in that gang. And then she and she won. Then Michelle Nunn, who was running as a fiscally conservative Democrat in Georgia, she ran a great race, but she ended up losing. And then three independents. Um, If you remember Greg Orman in Kansas, for a while he was leading that race as an independent. Um, A woman by the name of Jill Bossy in South Carolina, who really never had a great shot from the beginning. And then Larry Pressler in South Dakota, who was interesting because he had been a three-term senator as a Republican left the party because of their rightward drift and said, you know what, 
I'm going to run as an independent. We were hoping he could win, but he did not. So of the five, only one was able to win, even though at various points, four of them were leading their races. So we need more momentum. We need more momentum. We need more people. <laughs> I mean, honestly, the most discouraging thing I hear is after I've given the pitch to people, they say, wow, that's great. Good luck. Mm. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. Wait, this isn't my country. It's your country. <laughs> I, I suddenly get responsibility for this. Right? I mean, it's got to be more than that. It's really got to be people feeling an ownership. And right. my fear is people are so divorced from government that they treat government kind of like the Chicago Cubs. That, you know, it's disappointing year after year. It's not going to get better. I'm just going to go on with my life elsewhere. Yep. Definitely true. So, hey, if uh, people want to learn more about this or uh, find out where they can get involved or maybe read your books, where should they go? Centristproject.org is where we've got all that stuff. And really, if people are excited about it, they've got to join, right? You've got to do something if you want to take ownership and make the country better. And NakedEconomics.com is my personal website that's got stuff on what I'm doing in the books and so on. Great. And if uh, do you like use Twitter or anything where people connect with you? Twitter at Charles Whelan. I'm tweeting fairly regularly as well about all this stuff. Great. Well, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a really enlightening conversation. Oh, it's been great fun. Good luck with your work. For sure. So, hey, guys, if you have any questions about money, uh, you can email us over at listenmoneymatters at gmail.com. We'll get those answered potentially on the show. Also have Andrew get you a personal response. Uh, listenmoneymatters.com slash get-involved is where you can go if you want to subscribe to the show or find other ways to get involved, including uh, writing a review on iTunes if you want to see us bump up the charts and support us and tell us what we can do better, what you like. I'm going to read a review real quick. And this is from DTDRU. This is realistic and informative, geared more towards the younger people that like to drink a lot and don't have kids. If you meet at least one of these criteria, then you'll probably like this podcast. And even if you don't, give it a shot anyway, because chances are you'll still learn a lot. Good variety of guests. We said awesome guests on the show. Thank you, Charles. And thanks to uh, DTDRU for the review. If you want to get our favorite money resources for managing your money, budgeting, learning more, uh, we have book recommendations. Go over to listenmoneymatters.com slash toolbox all we have for you so thanks again for hanging out and we look forward to the next episode later andrew later man please tell your friends about this show